Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm your host and interviewer, Scott Miller. We're now strongly into our second year of On Leadership, which has fast become the world's largest weekly newsletter dedicated to the topic of leadership. Now, we all have a different definition of leadership. Some of that for you is high competence. Some is high character. Some is communication, discipline, decision-making. We try to touch on all of those topics as we interview guests. If you've had a chance to look at some of our previous interviews, they've been phenomenal. Doris Kearns Goodwin, Susan Kane, Dan Pink, Chris McChesney, Corey Kogan, Liz Wiseman, Seth Godin. The names go on and on. They keep getting better. If you've not had a chance to dip back into the archive, at this point now, there's close to 60 interviews, each one that kind of gets better than the one before it. In fact, just this past week, we had a production meeting, and I asked the entire production team, about 10 people, which was their favorite interview? And everybody had a different name for a different reason, which I thought was great because I think we're touching on a lot of different ideas. And today is a great conversation with the famed author, speaker, really kind of social scientist, communication expert, Julian Treasure, who's written many books, including How to Be Heard, his TED Talks, Get This and Sit Down, have been viewed by over 90 million people worldwide. I could not be more honored to have Julian Treasure on today's On Leadership program. Welcome, Julian. Thank you so much, Scott. Good to be here. No pressure at all. You just said they get better and better. And after that <laughs> list of names, I'm feeling quite nervous now. Well, I know you are a big fan of Dr. Stephen R. Covey because you mentioned him in the book and you're a fan of one of our co-founders and my dear friend, Hiram Smith. You mentioned an interview in your book, so I feel like we're right at home. So kind of welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah, I had a wonderful time interviewing Hiram. He was very insightful about listening and leadership. And it was a fascinating time. Yeah, he's actually been a guest on our program as well. So he's a dear friend of ours and leaves a big legacy around the world. Julian, I want to take a few minutes before we get into the book and, and have you share with our, our audience kind of what your journey is, kind of, you know, what was your expertise? How did you become so passionate about this topic around communication, sound, noise, listening? We'll get into all of those. Give everybody kind of a sense for how you got to where you are. Well, first of all, I'm not a, an academic or a scientist, really. I, I have uh, a long career in marketing. Mm -hmm. In my previous life, I ran a magazine publishing company in the UK, which grew very fast and became one of the leading custom publishing houses, working for big brands like Lexus and Microsoft and Apple, producing custom magazines. So I understood a lot about marketing brands and communication, outbound communication, of course, because when you say communication to a, a company, they always think, outbound, never inbound. Uh, we can talk about that later. All the way through that, though, I was a musician. I still am a musician. And I think musicians listen to the world slightly differently from non-musicians. If you're playing in a band or an orchestra, you have to listen to everybody else simultaneously. It's a kind of multi-track listening. And I was doing that to the world and considering just the world doesn't sound very good. There's this noise all around us. It's kind of the exhaust gas of the economy. Sound is not generally designed. I mean, whoever's listening to this, look around you in your room and just ask, you know, as you see everything in your room, it was designed for the eyes, but was it designed for the ears? We don't do much of that. So when I sold my magazine publishing business, I really wanted to do something which combined brands and sound. So I, I formed a 
an audio branding company called The Sound Agency, which is still going 15 years later and doing very well. And along the way, I got the chance to do the TED Talks. And I started to understand that sound is not just made by big organizations, although they do a lot of that. Most of them spend lots on how they look and nothing on how they sound. So a lot of them don't sound that good. Sound is also made by us as individuals. And I really started to consider that we have deprioritized speaking and listening, two very, very important skills. We're much more obsessed with reading and writing. We teach them in school. Do we teach talking? No. Do we teach listening? Hardly at all, ever. So these skills are, are getting squashed, I think, by the amount of stuff that we do for the eyes. And that is really how I started my second business, which is me talking, writing, and I describe myself now as a sound evangelist, really. So that's, that's the role. I think I'm putting across academic work other people have done, really spreading the message that it's vital to listen better than we do, to listen consciously to the world and to other people. And it's also very important to speak effectively and powerfully. And these things need to be trained. They are skills. Julian, could not agree more. I've just authored a book myself, Management Mess to Leadership Success. And one of the 30 challenges that I list in the book that all leaders face is the third challenge around listening first. I talk a lot about uh, how most of us have been trained to be powerful communicators, but how little training we have on the listening part of communication. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'd like to have your assessment. Why do you think there are 90 million views of your TED Talks. I mean, we occasionally, some of us know someone who once did a TEDx, and occasionally you might mean, meet someone who delivered an actual TED Talk. Why do you think there's been such a global wave of interest in your, your ideas, especially, and not only, but especially via TED? I think the interesting thing to reflect on is that the bulk of those views, well over half of them, I think, are for one talk, uh, which is in the top 10 of all time now, and that's the talk on how to speak so that people want to listen. So it's a talk about talking. And that, that was quite a nerve wracking thing to do. If you're going to stand on a TED stage and talk about talking, <laughs> that's putting your head well above the parapet, isn't it? Yes. Um, fortunately, I didn't get it knocked off. Uh, but that talk certainly has resonated with a lot of people. And what I find in the work I do with people when I'm consulting or creating trainings is that the problem of not being heard, of the, the frustration of not being able to put a point across, of people not listening, it is a huge issue out there. I think partly because we don't train children at school in how to speak effectively. It's very rare uh, that I have an audience. If I say how many people have had formal speech training or vocal training, maybe one or 2% yeah. will put their hands up. Not many these days, even, even now. So I think that's resonated. The other ones uh, about sounding, the, the one on listening has been seen by one-fifth as many people, which says something, doesn't it? Hmm. We're much more focused on sending mm -hmm. than on receiving generally, on speaking than on listening. And that's true for organizations just as much as it is, as it is for individuals. Um, the other ones on sound, I think it's an, a reaction I've had very often is, that is so obvious, and I'd never thought of it before. <laughs> so perhaps, you know, I've got a talent for uncovering 
what we call in this country the bleeding obvious <laughs> and uh, revealing it when it's been under people's noses all this time. The fact that buildings are poorly designed and are often not fit for purpose, schools, hospitals, offices, uh, they're places we inhabit a lot and the noise in them is killing us, literally in some cases. Uh, so I think the effects of sound on us, the, the importance of listening, these are things that everybody knows intuitively, but perhaps they've got squashed because the world is just so noisy, we've, we've got into the habit of suppressing our consciousness of sound. Julian, let's use your most famous TED Talk. I mean, it has, I think, just shy of, gosh, 40 million views on TED alone. Uh, deconstruct it for a moment. What are some of the things you think you did well in terms of your posture, your movement, your body language? You know, you talk about how to hold the microphone. And as you now have taped it, what are some of the things you think you got wrong that you could have done better as people now, you know, watch it maybe for the first time after this interview? What did you get right and what did you get wrong? Um, in terms of getting things right, I was lucky that I'd done four previous TED Talks, so I was quite seasoned by that time. And the first TED Talk I did was very nerve-wracking. You look out into the audience, oh, there's Bill Gates, oh, there's Sergey Brin, oh, you know, it's like that. And uh, it's not unintimidating to be speaking to that group of people. Um, once you get used to it, you can get used to anything. You know, as, I'm, as I say to people in the trainings I give on, uh, public speaking, and the more you do it, the more comfortable you become. Uh, I'm I'm off uh, very shortly to speak to an audience of 16,000 people. Well, that's a big audience, but I'm not frightened. I'm feeling excited, but not frightened. It's it's a different feeling. Excited is good. Excited is adrenaline, is, is, is getting you ready. So I suppose I was lucky that I had done this before. I felt comfortable in that setting. Uh, I knew what I was doing, and um, that probably gave me a lot of confidence. Also, I'd worked with the TED people. They're very, very good. Before you give a TED talk, they work very closely with you, honing the talk and making sure it's pithy and the right length and you're covering the right material. I originally was trying to cram even more in uh, to that talk, and they advised me to cut some stuff out, which I did, and I'm very glad I did. Uh, I was going to cover something on public speaking, there simply wasn't the time, and it would have lost focus. Uh, I honed it and honed it and honed it, which is what I do with a lot of the talks I give. I really think about, uh, there's a concept in my book, which you, you'll remember, uh, which is that you always speak into a listening. So it's very important to think about who am I speaking to, or whom am I speaking to, what's the listening I'm speaking into, what is the pain these people are feeling or what are the issues they've got or how can I help them what gift can I give them and I had thought very clearly about those things for that talk and I was very clear that there was a lot of ineffective talking going on in the world so I came up with that list of seven deadly sins of speaking which perhaps we'll talk about a little bit later um, making lists is a very good thing to do in a talk and I did that very well I think um, I think I could have um, gone into a couple of the things in more detail, um, uh, perhaps. Uh, the vocal toolbox I had to do extremely quickly. And so, I, you know, perhaps I could have negotiated a, a couple more minutes with Ted and done a bit more detail on the vocal toolbox. But overall, I would have to say on that talk, uh, 
from from you know the way I feel about it, I think I knocked it out of the park on that one. I don't always. I, <laughs> I think the I, I think lucky. the evidence of 40 million people would probably agree with you. Julian, let's take some time and talk about listening. One of the things that really struck me in the book, of many sort of um, uh, pokes to be more self-aware, you talk about how you can tell a poor listener by sort of many measures. One of them was the person in the meeting who's always asking for someone to explain the concept to them back again, and that's me. And, and I really was uh, kind of humbled by that assessment. In most meetings I'm in, my mind gets distracted. I'm in lots of meetings. I have lots of things going on. And I think, although I'm a fairly effective verbal communicator, that's debatable, I'm a horrifically ineffective listener. And I'm always that person who is trying to have something re-explained to me. What tips or advice would you give people to pretty immediately and deliberately increase their, their effectiveness on listening. There are some exercises throughout the book which I think help with that. The, but the first and most important thing to realize is that listening is doing something. It's not the same as hearing. Hearing is automatic, just like your heart beating, breathing, everything else that's autonomous in your, in your body you hear, you hear everything actually. Listening is a skill and you're doing two things actually when you listen. First of all, you're selecting things to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Out of all the things you hear, you pay attention to some of them, not all of them. And the second thing you do is you make those things mean something, you interpret them. And a lot of sound affects us by association or interpretation in that way. So my definition of listening is making meaning from sound, and it is absolutely a skill. Now, if you become conscious that you're doing something here, then you will become conscious if you stop doing it and retreat back to hearing the meeting. Hearing a meeting isn't very effective. Thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch or, oh, I forgot to turn the oven off or whatever it might be that you're thinking about, you're still hearing, but you're not selecting and you're not interpreting. So there's no uh, there's no reaction going on, there's no meaning making going on, and you're not actually going to perceive a lot. We're not very good at listening. The general numbers I've seen, we, we retain something like one word in four of what we hear. So it is work. That's the thing, Scott, it is work. And I think a lot of this is about preparing yourself, being willing to do the work, going into a meeting and saying, I'm going to listen. You know, I, I talk about the four C's of effective listening, and one of them is commitment. And that is to say, I'm going to listen in this meeting. I'm not going to pick my phone up. I'm not going to do my email. I'm not going to worry about that thing that I left back in the office. I'm actually going to be present. So in a way, it's a form of consciousness. It's a form of awareness. And it's a very, very powerful thing to do, because I really think there are huge numbers of people on this planet who've never had the experience of being fully listened to. We're so used to doing multiple things at the same time. So that would be my biggest tip to you, Scott, would be to make the commitment to yourself. I mean, you could do it to other people if you really want to get grandiose, but uh, to yourself, as you go into the meeting, say to yourself, this one, I'm going to listen and take it as an exercise. It's exciting to do it that way. I, I think it's great advice, especially for me, because listening really is a selfless gift, is it not? It really, it really makes you 
get on the other person's timeline, on their agenda, on their thoughts, and deliberately eliminate all of the distractions, consciously deliberately eliminate the distractions in your mind. It's not, it's easier said than done. It is, but it is very powerful. And I, I say in the book, and I say in all my talks, really there's a payoff to this. It's not just nice to listen, it's essential for yourself. Yeah. Because listening and speaking, they're in a circle. And this is the central thesis of the book. It's not, I speak, you listen. It doesn't work that simply. Because the way I listen affects the way you speak. And the way you speak affects the way I listen. And further, the way I listen affects the way you listen. And the way I speak affects the way you speak. So we've got this complex interaction going on in a circle the whole time. If you want people to listen to you and get your message across, listen to them. Listening is underpinning speaking all the time. And somebody who isn't present and doesn't listen to other people tends to come across as rude or not very effective in their communication because they'll be delivering non sequiturs the whole, the whole time. It's the kind of, anyway, uh, I was thinking about this and everybody goes, hey, that's got nothing to do with what we right. were just saying. Right. So that kind of communication isn't tremendously effective. What listening always creates is understanding. And if you want to lead people, how better to do that than by understanding them? And this was actually something Hiram Smith said to me in the interview. He said, listening is the most important skill for any leader. He did, that was a great interview in the book. The, the book is exceptionally rich with practical advice. One of the insights as we move to kind of the speaking part of communication or of being heard, was I also was struck by your comments around volume. I, I, I tend to be a fast and persuasive, but very loud speaker. And I don't know if it's because as I've aged, my hearing's not as good, or it's you know a um, subconscious strategy to uh, persuade people, but I tend to talk much louder than I need to. What advice would you give people that tend to talk too soft or tend to talk too loud? Is that the right way to describe it? How can someone monitor if the volume of their voice is working for them or against them? There are a lot of ways of doing this. And again, the, the key is consciousness, is asking yourself the question. Uh, many of us don't ever think about the way we're delivering content. Uh, there's this huge assumption many people make, uh, which is everybody listens like I do. So it, I'm fine talking the way I like hmm. to, be, to, to hear people. That's not true. Everybody's listening is unique. So you're always speaking into a different listening. And so it behooves you, if you really want to get the ball over the net and to, and to deliver your message effectively, ask yourself, what's the listening I'm speaking into? And then moderate or modulate your delivery style to fit. That's called building rapport. You know, there are books and books on this, which is matching and mirroring people's pace. If you're talking to somebody who's very, very slow, and really calm. Drives me crazy. Then a kind of, <laughs> <laughs> well, then a bombastic and aggressive style of delivery is just going to upset them and right. it won't work. Right. So out of respect for other people, you know, ask that question. It's one of the most important questions I, I talk to people about in the book. It, ask the question, what's the listening? What's the listening? If you're with a bunch of people who speak loud and fast, then speaking loud and fast is going to be brilliant. And you may have to up your game a bit to compete with them. 
if on the other hand you're with a group of people who are very quiet and somnolent and 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 restrained then it's probably better to tone it down a little bit so what i'm saying scott is there's no right answer uh, there's no one size fits all here what's important is to think carefully about how you're being received and to listen to the listening and then you'll automatically start to deliver in a more effective way. Julian, I want to save time to talk about posture, body language, and the seven deadly sins. But first, let's talk about word choice. You have some thoughts on being more deliberate about the words we choose to communicate ideas and describe things. Give us some insight around how each of us can become more conscious and aware of the power, positive and diminutive, of the words that we use. Yes, I think words are very powerful indeed. And you, you only have to look at human history to understand that's the case, whether they're printed or said. And I, I would tend to say spoken even more powerful than printed, mm. although you can obviously publish printed work. Uh, but these days, the spoken word gets published too. And, you know, the YouTube phenomenon shows us that. Uh, I do get frustrated by what I call language devaluation or language inflation. Once upon a time, it was fine to be excited about things, and now you have to be super excited. And I guess in five years, we'll have to be super, super excited because super excited won't be excited enough. Uh, that kind of hyperbole is devaluing a whole bunch of words that get left behind. So for example, we've got all these words now that just mean nice, like amazing, fantastic, brilliant. I mean, they all just mean good or nice now. Uh, they used to have special meanings, so I think it's quite a powerful exercise, and it's one I recommend in the book. Take it on for a day, if you like, anybody listening to this, to say exactly what you mean without the hyperbole that tends to go along with modern conversation. Uh, so, yes, I think words are incredibly important. It's also uh, very useful to ask yourself how much negative language you're using. Uh, there's a couple of the deadly sins which are around negativity or judgmentalism. And if you, were, if you tend to use the word not a great deal, that's something to look out for. Uh, another one that I've banned from my vocabulary altogether is the word should. I can't think of a single useful situation uh, for that word, really. It's a very judgmental word. I should lose weight. I'm judging myself. You should, you should be doing a much better job than you. That's judging you. So... There are other ways of saying things without using the word should. Uh, th there are many examples of these kinds of things, but you can always replace but with and, and it actually improves the sense of what you're saying. I Probably 99% of the time it would anyway. So language is important, and it's important to be clear and clean in the words that you're using. Julian, do me a favor. Will you repeat that challenge to everybody about maybe perhaps starting tomorrow, because I think that is one of the best insights you've shared thus far around eliminating the extraneous hyperbole. So kind of challenge everybody, including me, tomorrow to take that challenge again. Okay, so take this on tomorrow. You're listening to this today. You probably need to gear yourself up for this one. The challenge is say exactly what you mean, and you will be amazed by how challenging that actually is. Removing all the verys and reallys and amazings and fantastics, all the hyperboles, all the, um, you never listen to me. Really? Never? I don't think so. All of these things that we do in language, which tend to create arguments or 
stoke arguments up or which allow us to be louder and larger than we need to be in a conversation. It's a very beautiful skill to say exactly what you mean. You might enjoy it for a day. You might even decide to continue it. Julian, I think I'm guilty of it. And here's, here's my premise, and you can deconstruct this and send me to a therapist or a coach. My sense is in this <laughs> uber competitive environment with onslaught choices, opportunities, options, decisions, you want to cut through the clutter. You want to influence. You want to persuade. And so I find myself sometimes, to my own detriment, of explaining something in a way that is, you know, um, hyperinflated. I, I once used the term. I'm known for using the term unconscionable. Like that decision is unconscionable. No, the Holocaust was unconscionable. I'm not sure this decision. Mm -hmm. Any premise as to why people like me, that are otherwise truth tellers and credible people tend to inflate our language, is it to, why is it? Well, it's a habit, and mm -hmm. it's a habit which uh, I think does exist quite a lot in your country, I would tend to say. I mean, the example I gave on the TED stage, which is always a, an easy target, is the word awesome. I mean, if a pizza or a pair of trainers is awesome, what's a sunset? It's gone. What do we, how do we describe that thing that engenders a sense of real awe in us? So uh, I think it's a shame that the language gets reduced in that way and, and watered down. It's a habit, and I understand completely that it becomes a kind of game of competition. Uh, it's almost like the, you know, the competitive speaking thing. It's a lot of it's about looking good, about being noticed, mm -hmm. about being right, and so forth. These are some of the habits which I talk about in the book, which aren't necessarily tremendously useful to us. And I think the American author Harville Hendricks said, you can either be right or be in a relationship. And I think there's <laughs> a lot of truth in that. That's awesome. So uh, these are natural human tendencies. And just as, you know, a lot of us eat more than we would want and would like to lose weight, or we, we feel we should exercise more. Oh, there was that word. We feel we could exercise more. Um, these language inflation things, they become habitual, especially in a world where we're always on, we're fast cut, we're multiple input, everything's got to be bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the next superhero movie has got to be twice as loud as the last one. Everything, there's this um, addiction, uh, which I think is not an unreasonable word to use in this, to more and bigger. And I would challenge that. Uh, I would go for better, uh, higher quality, you know, countries, politicians, they all want more. We ought to grow. Why? Why don't we just be happier? So I think uh, I would be much more in the line of being more precise and, and, and particular. And if you ask the question, what's the listening, you may find you don't need to go quite so hyperbolic. Julian, I have to call you out because I think the Brits have some responsibility with their overuse of the word brilliant. I lived there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally own that. And we complain a lot as well. So <laughs> I love that part of your TED Talk. Let's talk about posture and body language. You, you phrased something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher here. I think you called it sort of the texting posture. But after all these decades of doing this, we tend to, to kind of talk that way. Talk about the connection between our lifestyle around our phones and our texting and the correlation to how our posture impacts our voice and our presence when we are on stage or we're speaking to someone? Well, many of us spend a huge amount of time. I mean, I'm sitting at a desk right now looking at a computer and the tendency is to be leaning forward like this 
and to let the lower back go a little bit. And if I lean right forward, you can hear the effect it has on my voice because my vocal cords are becoming stretched. And how many times do we sit on a phone like this uh, and the vocal cords are not working effectively? But you can do the opposite if you withdraw your head back into your neck like this. The vocal cords are squashed and they can't work properly there either. So if you want to speak powerfully and effectively, it's important that your vocal cords are nicely relaxed in your neck. And that means head above the shoulders, relatively vertical, everything's stacked. There's a great way to visualize this, which is imagine a string in the top of your head and everything is dangling from that string. You can do it sat down as I am now, or you can do it standing up. And it's what I always do when I come on stage and deliver a talk. String on the top of the head, everything loose and relaxed. It puts your shoulders back and down, puts everything vertical. And if you want to get very, very powerfully fixated on the stage, you can visualize roots going from your feet into the ground. And that is a great way to stand to deliver any talk. And it'll also reduce extraneous, irritating movement. So if you're talking on stage, try that one out. String at the top, roots at the bottom, everything relaxed in the middle, off you go. Julian, let's do a power round, speed round, because I want to get the seven deadly sins in. Would you take maybe 30 seconds on each of these seven deadly sins? What's a key takeaway? And then I'd love to talk a bit about how organizations work with you to better manage the sound for their employees and their clients. Let's talk about the seven deadly sins. Okay, very quickly. Number one, gossip, speaking ill of somebody who's not present, doesn't help and it devalues, uh, especially since most gossip is made up or untrue or exaggerated. And number two, and by the way, I'm not saying never do these things. I'm saying if you do them a lot, it makes it harder to listen to you and people won't listen as carefully to you. Number two, condemning, uh, judgmentalism, the kind of parent whose child comes home, says, I got 95% in the test, and they say, what happened to the other five? That kind of negative judgmentalism is really hard to be around for a long time. Next door to that, negativity, and that's, you know, I told the story about my mother in that one who was enormously negative towards the end of her life, and I took a paper into her in the hospital and said, oh, look, it's October the 1st. And she said, I know, isn't it dreadful? And, you know, it, it just gets you down to be, it's, the sun's out, it's going to rain later. Ugh. Come on. You know, you have to go away and recharge to be around that kind of negativity. Then another cousin uh, of negativity, complaining, uh, which is, as we said, the British national pastime. If, if the food is bad in the restaurant, complain. If it's weather or sport, that's just viral misery. Complaining about stuff doesn't help. Then we have excuses, not my fault, their fault. You know, some people have, have a blame through it. It's never their fault. If it's never your fault, you are not going to learn anything. And that was a big thing that Hiram and I discussed was the importance of mistakes, owning them, correcting them in the whole process of innovation. Then we have exaggeration, which we've just discussed, uh, which starts off like that. And then it goes bigger and bigger. And we end up with outright lies. And I'm sure nobody listening to this has ever claimed to have read a book they haven't read or anything like that. We all do it, but it's a question of degree. And then finally, we have dogma, dogmatism, my way or the highway, confusing opinions with facts. They are two different things. When you collapse them together, there's a lot of argument and table thumping that goes on. So those are the seven deadly sins of communication.
Julian, speak to the millions of, li of leaders that are listening or watching to this interview. Of those seven, is there one that is disproportionately more positively or negatively impactful in a leader's role with their team that if they were to correct it, become more aware, nip it in the bud, that their leadership influence would perhaps disproportionately expand or exponentiate? I think condemning is disproportionately negative. Um, there's that film Whiplash about the drummer where the guy says there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Well, that's tragic. I mean, you're not going to have much of a team if that's the way you lead people. If it's all criticism and no praise, people need to be inspired. So I think that's a particularly negative one. The one that uh, tends to be displayed positively in some organizations is the dogmatism. Is, uh, you know, if you think of Steve Jobs, a lot of his inventions were opinions. He was going against all the evidence quite a lot of the time and saying that I know that this is right. And he was. So sometimes you need uh, an inspired leader to be quite dogmatic uh, in order to deliver that genius. Yeah, I got something right. <laughs> Number seven <laughs> might be my specialty. Uh, Julian, talk it to the parents that are listening. Any advice you would give parents on, as they're working with their children, what they can do to better hear, have their children be more effectively heard, what advice would you give to parents? I think if you want a child to listen to you, you have to demonstrate the skill of listening to them. And listening as an adult would to another adult, listening to a child that way, I think is immensely powerful. Uh, I have a four-year-old daughter and uh, we spend a lot of time listening to her. We give her, you know, undivided attention. It's awfully easy these days with mobile phones, other devices around to be going, yeah, no, I'm, I'm listening. I'm oh, really, deadly. oh, mm -hmm. that's really interesting. That's not listening. That's doing something else. Scott Peck, uh, the, the author of a wonderful book, The Red Less Traveled, said, you cannot truly listen to another person and do anything else at the same time. And I think that's absolutely true. So give your child the gift of 100% attention and you'll be amazed by what comes about as you listen to them in that way. It teaches them to do the same to you and you're on a virtuous circle instead of the vicious circle of nobody listening to anybody and everybody shouting at everybody. Julian, you spend a lot of your time public speaking, writing, consulting with organizations. You're quite passionate around the role that sound plays in organizations. What, uh, how does a client engage with you? When you're working with a client, what types of problems are you solving for clients and how does someone, an organization, a CEO or someone work with your firm? Well, uh, most of the work I do at the moment is going around the world and talking at big events. Uh, these are, tend to be conferences um, and places where people think, we, it would really be helpful to help people listen better. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I open a big thing and teach people a little bit about listening so they can get a better experience over the next few days, yeah. uh, for example. Uh, so the speaking on stage is, is a big part of it. Um, we also do consultative work from time to time. We do uh, coaching for CEOs. That's happened, uh, and it's very intense. We do that over four days, um, and that really leaves them quite tired at the end of it. But um, for CEOs who perhaps have challenges in getting their message across, it can be very effective. Um, what I'm very excited about right now is we're just putting the finishing touches to 
a course, an online course called How to Speak So That People Want to Listen, which is going to be available in just a few weeks. Uh, so probably very similar to the time this podcast comes out, I would think. And right. uh, I'm so excited because it's going to allow me to travel a bit less, stay in my beloved Orkney, see my daughter a bit more and get the message across to many more people. So it's win, win, win uh, from that point of view. So talk a bit about that. How does someone learn about how to become you know, closer involved in those sessions? What are they like? How does someone consume them? Where can they go to learn more about that? Uh, well, the training will be online and its uh, details will be on my website, julientreasure.com, where okay. incidentally we put a landing page on for this podcast with some lovely free bits and pieces for people training them in how to listen better. So that's all there, uh, julientreasure.com forward slash on leadership. Um, so that's that would be the first place to go. Connect there and then we'll keep you up to date with everything that's happening. Uh, the email is in there as well. If you want to make contact with me personally, delighted to hear from you and to see if we can help with any challenges in communication. Julian, great conversation. Thank you for joining us today from off the coast of Scotland and England at your home. I hope it all goes well for you. I think the best part of this interview was the phrase, you can either be right or you can be in a relationship. That was prophetic. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been my pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. I'm a little bit paranoid now around my speaking and my voice and my tone and my posture. So what a gift Julian's given us. Thank you for joining us for another great conversation with Julian Treasure. I strongly encourage you to go out, buy the book for your team, How to Be Heard, listen to his uh, uh, TED Talks. I'm guessing after this On Leadership interview, it'll push past 100 million. Thank you for your interest in On Leadership, and we'll see you back here next week with a new guest.